0: And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela.
1: We are on location on the Grand Canyon floating on the Colorado River at around mile 122. Just stopped at Blacktail Canyon, hiked up in there, had some beautiful traditional bird songs sung by two Olapai brothers played some didgeridoo up there and then one of our fellow guides also busted out his guitar and the acoustics were amazing it was a beautiful experience. Now we're floating downriver. it's a sunny day and I'm sitting here on location with Jeff Carpenter his friends call him Carp. Carp is a herpetologist and he teaches field herpetology at the University of Oklahoma's biological station. Carp, thank you so much for sitting in my boat today, and thank you so much, Brendis, for rowing us down the river.
2: Thank you for inviting me on board.
1: Carp, where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood?
2: I grew up in Oklahoma. I split time between Norman, Oklahoma, where the University of Oklahoma is, and the University of Oklahoma Biological Station on Lake Texoma, which I consider my true home, where I was outside every day, all summer for eight weeks. In Norman, my mom and dad, usually dad would take us to Lake Thunderbird or Oliver's Woods or the zoo on weekends. We were always doing stuff outside. I wasn't allowed to watch much TV. I was always outside doing something. I got my real taste for the outdoors at the biological station where my dad taught classes in herpetology and animal behavior and ethoecology. Any of the cool field trips, once I was big enough, you know, I went along took me to the Wichita Mountains where we saw bison and prairie dogs and collared lizards. And one of my favorites was to go to the Dallas Zoo, the Dallas Aquarium, and see all the cool, exotic animals. When we were at the biological station, I was outside every day, all day. In the mornings, I'd go to the boathouse and flip over rocks on the causeway and try and catch crawfish and look for water snakes check a dip net out of the stock room and try and catch baby turtles and put them in tanks and check out a pinning box and a kill jar and a net and make an insect collection. I don't like to kill anything anymore, but back then it was pretty cool to try and catch the scary wasps and put them on a pin. And I was always helping the ichthyologists saying fishes out of the lake. And there was seminars every Wednesday night, which I always went to even as a little kid. So to this day, I don't like being inside. I like to be outside as much as possible. I get edgy if I'm inside for too long. I can only sit at the computer for about 45 minutes, and then I have to go out and get some fresh air and sunshine and stretch a little bit. Even as a little kid, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV. I was told to go outside and play, so that's what I did, looking for bugs. And we used to have horned lizards in our yard in the middle of Norman, Oklahoma when I was a kid. They're nowhere nearby now, but it's developed so much. When I was 10, I got to start going with my dad to Mexico on what he called Safari. He'd load the station wagon up with his buddy Bob Clark from Emporia State University who'd been his first doctoral student who's actually a few months older than my dad. Yeah we'd go deep into Mexico and catch lizards and snakes and stay in hotels and I got to drink lots of pop because the water wasn't safe to drink and I thought that was pretty cool. The graduate students got to drink lots of beer and they liked that. So yeah, I got to see a lot of really cool things as a young kid and I got to hear a lot of things kids that age probably shouldn't hear riding around in the station wagon and also around the kitchen table. My mom was a biochemist and she'd met my dad at the University of Michigan Biological Station. They both got their doctorates in zoology from Michigan in the 40s and then they moved to Oklahoma. When we took family vacations, it was to Mexico or maybe up to Aspen. Often it coincided with one or the other of my parents attending a professional meeting. I've always liked being outdoors more than indoors. I was always riding my bike all over town. By the time I got to high school, my favorite activity was going out to the Canadian riverbed and then tooling around. And my first job, when I was probably about six, I'd rented a little plastic aquarium from the stock room to keep crawdads in. And I had it on the front porch of the apartment and the storm came through and broke it. And my dad made me bring it back to the stock room and figure out how much it cost. And I had to spend the next few weeks going around to all the labs and all the apartments and collecting pop bottles for a penny apiece. I had to pay back for that aquarium. And then when I was seven, my job was getting up at dawn and putting the flag up on the flagpole and taking it down at dusk. And I did that every morning and every night for eight weeks. And I got 20 bucks, which was a lot of money back then. Then my job was to fill the pop machines. And when the guys came from the soda companies, tell them what we needed and take inventory and sort all the bottles and take the money to the office. So in the mornings, I'd go collect crawdads and look for snakes and try and catch turtles and walk around Mayfield Cove. And then in the afternoons, we'd hang out at the swim beach and play and go fishing. One of my favorite things to do is right after lunch, when I was old enough to where I didn't have to take a siesta, because my dad, to this day, he's 92 years old, and he's got to have his siesta every day to get my bamboo pole with a hook on it, and I'd get a pop bottle, and I'd catch grasshoppers on the way to the boathouse, and I'd get a stringer full of bluegills and long-eared sunfish, and I'd feed them to my dad's alligators. There were tanks in the main building, these huge concrete tanks with spigots that delivered lake water, and my dad had a couple big gators, Albert and Churchy, and I'd feed them the fish, and then also, we caught cool turtles during the summer. There was other tanks, you know, we'd put snapping turtles in, and red-eared sliders. It's always been a way of life for me. And nowadays, you know, I told you I have a pet gar at home. And when I want to feed it in the summer, I walk out to my driveway with my flip-flops on, and I grab a dip net, and I dip into the creek by my house, the clear ditch, and I catch mosquito fish. And I feed the gar, and I take the dogs down there. And I wade around and swim. And in the heat of the summer, if my neighbor's around, he might come over in his little golf carty thing with a chair and his Budweiser and I might make myself a chili beverage and sit down in the creek with them and visit for a little while in the late afternoon. It's about 10 degrees cooler out there. And I tool around my property looking for lizards. And then the work I do, threatening the nature of species clearance surveys is one of the things I do in some remote areas of New Mexico where my job is to figure out using GPS coordinates and maps where I need to go, find places and in inventory all the plants and animals that are out there Be aware of any sensitive plants or animals that are potentially present in that county, let's say, and then write a report. I don't like writing the reports, but I sure do love hiking around with my binoculars and my field book and taking notes.
1: We're here on location on the Grand Canyon, speaking with Jeff Carpenter. And I'm back on the oars right now, rowing, and we've got some rapids that we're putting the recording equipment away for every five minutes, it seems. But we're trying to get this first segment recorded. And my next question for you, Carp, is did you have a moment in your early childhood where you learned a lesson, maybe made a mistake involving wildlife, and made a mistake and you walked away from that learning a lesson?
2: One thing I remember is I must have been four years old I'd never had a wasp sting. I was afraid of them, Didn't want to have a wasp sting. But I was out back of the apartment building shooting one of those old little dart guns that was spring-loaded, and you shot a plastic dart with a suction cup on the tip, trying to get him to stick to the uh, apartment window on the back, and I thought my aim had gotten pretty good, and I was gonna take out this little paper wasp nest. And sure enough, I hit it, and I got stung, and it hurt a lot, and I cried. And I, uh, I never shot another wasp nest again. I've been stung again, but it doesn't hurt as much when you grow up. But yeah, I learned to be careful that time. Another time when I was older, I was maybe 19, and I was with my dad. And we were on safari in Baja, and I saw an earless lizard run into a hole in the sand. And I was trying to dig it out, using both hands, kind of digging like a dog. All of a sudden, I was scraping the sand off the back of a speckled rattlesnake. The next thing I know, I was like, whoa! You know, I let out a little yelp, and I was 10 feet behind where I was standing. And then we proceeded to catch the snake and take measurements and all of that. So those are a couple of things that I remember.
1: Carp, your father was a herpetologist, and you now are a herpetologist. Your mother was a biochemist. So tell me about learning early on about these different herps, as you call them, and to learn about them and also respect them.
2: Well, everything, you know, has to be handled with care when you capture it, and you never want to injure anything. You know, I learned a lot of lessons about how to catch a lizard right by catching them wrong and not putting my hand down in front of them when you hand capture and breaking their tail. I always really felt bad about that. So, I learned to be patient and learned to use the noose, but I never remember not knowing that Woodhouse's toads are called bufa Woodhousei. I was just raised around it. I knew all the local turtles and fish, and sometimes even the insects. My dad was a really good herpetologist, and he had a lot of friends who were herpetologists, would come to visit. I remember Dr. Fukada coming from Japan when I was a little boy, and I still have this Japanese snake skin that he brought me. My dad's still with us, he's 92 years old, still going strong, and I feel very fortunate everyone should love and admire their father as much as I do and that's just the way it should work.
1: Tell us about the word herpetologist. Where does that word come from?
2: It comes from a Greek word, herpeton, which means to creep and crawl. So herpetologists study creepy crawlies. Now herpetologists study both amphibians and reptiles, whereas an ornithologist studies only one vertebrate class, the aves or the birds, and mammalogists study only one vertebrate class, the mammals. Ichthyologists study three vertebrate classes, the jawless fishes, the cartilaginous fishes, and the bony fishes. And herpetologists study both amphibians and reptiles. So as you work your way down the evolutionary scale, I guess you study more and more groups. So yeah, I study creepy crawlies. We're on location
1: on the Grand Canyon, about to drop into a Rapid with a pretty decent horizon line. So quickly, Carp, could you tell me a song that reminds you of your early childhood?
2: Oh, my early childhood. The Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, you know, some Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan stuff, you know. I remember as a little kid in the 60s, all the hippies sitting around on the porch at the biological station playing Mr. Bojangles and Where Have All the Flowers Gone and Vietnam War protest songs. So those are my earliest musical memories where have all the flowers gone even though it's kind of dopey just because it's so iconic of that period in american history and because everybody knew the words and everybody would sing along in the old days the sense of community we had in our big family at the biological station is rivaled only by the sense of the community on a grand canyon river trip <music>
0: Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled. An adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment. Storytelling.
1: Location on the Colorado River, which runs through the Grand Canyon. And we're past Blacktail, floating down river probably around mile 124. And we're speaking with Jeff Carpenter. His friends call him Carp, and he is a herpetologist. He teaches field herpetology at the University of Oklahoma's Biological Station carp i'd like to talk to you about the herpetology of the grand canyon since that's where we're at right now and we're also doing the gts guide training seminar trip so we've been in the company of geologists hydrologists national park service employees we also are here with the lava flow specialists and other biologists so let's talk about the herpetology of the grand canyon
2: when you think of herpetology in the Grand Canyon, you first think about the Grand Canyon rattlesnake, formerly called the Grand Canyon pink, and everybody expects carb to be able to find one. But, you know, encountering rattlesnakes in a linear habitat such as the Grand Canyon is largely opportunistic, and I enjoy providing an interpret about lizards. You know, lizards are one of the most visually conspicuous organisms, biota, in the Grand Canyon, and they're really cool. I like them. So we have some common types of lizards and some that you don't see quite so often. You know, probably the most common species are the side blotch lizard, the tiger whiptail, and the tree lizard. Then the collared lizard and the chuckawalla. Now everything I just mentioned, five of those six species, belong to one lizard group that are highly territorial. Where males establish and defend territory and their resources, including females that might occupy them from other males. And one of the ways they demarcate their territories is by making rounds around the periphery of the territory and doing push-ups and head bobs. These are species-typical displays in lizards that they use to communicate with conspecifics, with other lizards. And by species-typical, I mean each species has a different head bob pattern. For instance, sidewatch lizards are about the same size and appear kind of similar to the untrained eye to a tree lizard but their push-ups are very different. So even from a distance, you can tell a side-blotch lizard from a tree lizard. A tree lizard does a four-legged push-up, and it does one slow, two slow push-ups, followed by a variable number of rapid ones, and then these displays vary both within and among populations. A side-blotch lizard, down here, does only front-end push-ups, and they're more rapid bobs. It's not quite so defined. So even from a distance, if you see a lizard on a rock, a small lizard, you can tell whether it's a tree lizard or a side blotch lizard. And tree lizards prefer vertical surfaces, so they like to climb sheer rock faces. You get into an area where there's red wall adjacent to the river or schist, look for stuff moving on the rocks, and it's probably tree lizards. The side blotch lizards prefer to be down in the sands and flatter areas where they have their territories. Desert spinies, that's one I forgot to mention, are very abundant down here. They're one of the more robust. I guess the one we caught in camp the other day they were calling the hot dog lizard. They also do displays. Males of these lizards have bright blue badges, we call them. They have throat patches or gular badges, and they have bright blue bellies. When they get intense in their display, they exhibit something called lateral compression, where they push out that blue belly, and you can see it in gular extension. So when they're doing the push-up, they're showing off this badge. Alright, we paused to run another rapid and we were talking about the territorial lizards of the Grand Canyon. We talked about side lizards and tree lizards and desert spinies. And then the less frequently encountered, they used to be in the same family as the above mentioned, but they're in different families now. The chuckwallas are actually in the herbivorous lizard family, the iguanidae, the original family. And they're the vegetarian lizards of the Grand Canyon. They like it hot because it makes it easier to digest that vegetative matter. And then the collared lizards, Are in their own family, the Crotophytidae, they like it hot too because they like to run real fast. They got distinct necks, they got big heads. The name Crotophytis kinda means hammer-shaped head. And when they get up ahead of steam, they can be bipedal. They can run on two legs. They're just beautiful. The Western Whiptail is in a totally other group of lizards that are not territorial. They're nomadic foragers and they like to root around under shrubs and clumps of grass and eat bugs and termites and spiders and other small critters. Finally, there's a seventh species of lizard we might encounter down here, but they're nocturnal. We don't see them so frequently. Western banded geckos. That you run across them and they're really cool. They're not like your run of the mill gecko that have the toe pads and lack eyelids, they've got toenails and eyelids. They're among the eublephorine geckos. So, when I think about Grand Canyon herpetology, I think a lot about lizards. I know oh, there are other lizards you find once you get down to Diamond and below. The zebra tail lizard was once common, according to Larry Stevens, who's been down here since the 70s, and he'll rejoin our group tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to seeing Larry. A couple years ago, larry and i went in with the natural resources guy from the wallapai kerry christensen and we got a permit and we did the translocation Now, what had happened was in 1983 when they had the high flows zebra tail lizards on the diamond creek dunes became extirpated they went away not so much because of the high flows directly but because of the rig trucks driving all over the sand dunes and larry wanted to see him back there and so did i so me and larry and Kerry went and caught a, a few pairs and put them down at diamond creek dunes and I'm told they're reproducing and doing well. So lizards are a conspicuous component of the Grand Canyon biota. Now, there are also a couple common toads in the corridor. The woodhouse's toad, along the river and in the side canyons, you find more red spotted toads, and also in certain areas they hybridize and you get a red house toad. There's one tree frog that's common in the side canyons, the canyon tree frog, and we've seen a bunch of them already on this lower half of this trip. There used to be another. Frog, Leopard frogs are in peril everywhere, but you have to go up above Lee's Ferry or down below Diamond to find leopard frogs anymore. But what people are always the most interested in are the snakes. Above National Canyon, the only kind of rattlesnake you're going to find at river level is Crotalus origanus abyssus, the Grand Canyon rattlesnake. It used to be called Crotalus viridus abyssus, but based on genetic data, it's been shifted to the western complex. They're also called Grand Canyon pinks, but you know what, they're not always pink. I was told by someone on this trip the other day that he'd seen a diamondback rattler at Lee's Ferry, and I know that's not true. I know he saw a young Grand Canyon rattlesnake that still has that distinct pattern. Natural selection favors the substrate, so a lot of older individuals do have that nice pinkish hue. However, I've seen pinkish rattlesnakes below national, and those ones are speckled rattlesnakes. They're pretty easy to tell apart. Grand Canyon rattlesnakes have blotches rather than bands, and speckled rattlesnakes have bands rather than blotches. There's even some scale counts if you want to get close enough and look at the head. If you see a rattlesnake, there's no reason to be afraid. You should feel very fortunate, and you should keep your distance and watch their behavior. Once you get down to Fern Glen and below, you may see a black-tailed rattlesnake. Now, one of my pet peeves is people in Arizona call these Mojave Greens, and they're actually blacktails. And I gave a talk at the GTS a couple years ago about this. And they're beautiful, striking rattlesnakes. And once you get to diamond and below, you might also see that diamondback rattlesnake or a Mojave rattlesnake, which is totally different than a Mojave Green. Okay, so we've got Grand Canyon rattlesnakes, the Grand Canyon pink, from uh, Lee's Ferry down to National. And then below National, at river level, we start seeing speckled rattlesnakes, and not too many miles below that, you pick up blacktails, which are seen much less frequently. A lot of people tell me they saw a Grand Canyon pink downriver below National, and I usually point out to them that they saw a speckled rattlesnake that will also match the color of the substrate. So speckled rattlesnakes can be really pinkish colors. And then once you get to Diamond Creek and below you might find a diamondback or a Mojave. but I've never seen them at River level. I haven't spent a lot of time on the beaches below Diamond, but there's some other snakes you might find in the canyon too. Above lava, the common whip snake is the striped whip snake. And below lava, you might see a coach whip. They're diurnal predators with big eyes, and they're really cool. They probably eat a lot of lizards. Some of the less commonly encountered ones, I've seen patch-nosed snakes at least three times around Saddle. It's a smaller, stripedy snake with a big scale on the end of its nose. I've seen night snakes only a few times. The ant guy found one at Nautiloid on a GTS that Larry and Jerry led a few years ago. And a boatman once brought me a dried-up specimen from the McCormick mine, which is across from Lava Chuar. And only a couple times I've seen ground snakes, Sonora down here, but people send me pictures. And when I give a talk at the GTS, I'm always saying, if you, if you find a snake, please take a picture, record the geographic location and the date, and send it to me. I'd be happy to have it and happy to identify it if you need that. So there's other things like ringneck snakes down here. The less common ones we don't see a lot. Oh, Toner the other night was telling me about seeing what they now call thread snakes, but used to be called blind snakes on the beaches sometimes when it rains. So that pretty much encompasses most of the herps that we would see in the canyon versus other areas. There's maybe not that many species, but they're abundant and they're fun to watch.
1: Carp, can you tell us a little bit more about the blood temperature of these creatures and why some of them like to lay in the sun and how they are able to regulate that?
2: Yeah, reptiles and amphibians historically have been called cold-blooded, and that's a loaded term. The reason I don't like it is because a lizard or a snake can get their body temperature a lot warmer than we can, but they also get much cooler. So I prefer to call them poikilothermic ectotherms. Poikilotherms vary their temperature quite a bit, and ectotherms have an external source of heat. So a poikilothermic ectotherm will either exhibit heliothermy, which means basking, helio, the sun to adjust their temperature, or thigmothermy, body contact to the substrate to absorb heat. Whereas us warm-blooded critters were homeothermic endotherms. So we have a a constant high body temperature and an internal heat source. We pay the price for that. We've already eaten once today, and now we're stopping for lunch, and later on we're gonna eat dinner. A poikilothermic ectotherm might be able to eat, well, a large meal and get warm and digest it, and, and then use that energy to last them quite a while. However, they're constrained by environmental temperature for activity. If a lizard's too cold, they can't move very much. So until the sun comes out, especially in the shoulder seasons in the spring and the fall, lizards can't be active and they have to warm up before they can move very well. So they're real careful about where they are and exposing themselves to predators until they can get warm enough. So their activity is constrained by the temperature and also how far north they can go in the northern hemisphere or south in the southern hemisphere is constrained. Whereas mammals can exist everywhere, even to the poles, the North Pole anyway.
1: I think that a lot of people would say, yeah, it'd probably be a little bit difficult to tell a male between a female with lizards and with snakes. But can you tell us a couple of different ways that people can tell the difference between a male and a female?
2: Well, in the territorial lizards we talked about earlier, some species-only males display. And even in the species where females display, males display more frequently and more aggressively, The males tend to have the more colorful throats and bellies in the territorial species. And if you catch a lizard and hold it in hand beneath the vent or cloaca, the male of territorial lizards typically will have enlarged post-anal scales. Like in a tree lizard, the males are just a little longer and longer tails, and the females are a little shorter and squatter. So a lot of lizards exhibit sexual dimorphism, where you can visually tell the difference between the species. That's not usually the case in snakes. Snakes are a little tougher. But in lizards and snakes, the copulatory organs are paired. They have two hemipenes. So in a male snake, below the vent or cloaca, the tail tends to be a little broader. Maybe the tail's even a little longer. And so an experienced person can tell the difference by looking at them.
1: How do these creatures reproduce? I'm sure that they all have different ways of reproducing, but I'd like to talk to you about how they reproduce and also why rattlesnakes that are down here and a lot of the rattlesnakes in the world would do a dance
2: before they reproduce. The lizards down here, they have internal fertilization. They lay eggs, and they lay them in an area that has the appropriate temperature and moisture for them to hatch. Some of the snakes down here are egg layers. However, the rattlesnakes are not. They give live birth. Courtship in snakes involves some intertwining. The snake dances that you see where the two large snakes are high off the ground, and they're intertwined, and they're trying to topple one another. That's male-male combat in rattlesnakes, often mistaken for a courtship.
1: Is there a courtship dance and how does that differ?
2: Absolutely, every species of snake has a different sort of courtship ritual, but what they have in common is they involve some chemical communication, they have pheromones in their skin, they have cloacal glands. Similar to the display action patterns that were species typical, courtship rituals in snakes and lizards are species typical.
1: How often do most snakes shed their skin and why are they doing that?
2: Well, they shed their skin to grow, and the snakes do have an eyelid, you just don't see it. It's clear. It's a spectacle. The scale that goes over the eye, they grow a new one each time they shed. How often do they do it depends on how much they've had to eat and how warm they are. People often ask, can you tell the age of a rattlesnake by how many rattles it has? And not really. Older snakes have more rattles. But what happens is every time they shed, they put on a new segment at the base of the rattle. So the smallest segments are the ones at the tip of the rattle. If a rattlesnake has a complete rattle, then it's got that first segment that it was born with. But often rattlesnakes have incomplete rattles. That's one of the things we record when we're collecting data, morphological measurements on a rattlesnake. Another interesting thing about the rattles is you can tell how fast the snake is going by the shape of the rattle. If it tapers, then that means that the rattlesnake buttons are getting bigger each time and the snake's growing a lot. And if the segments are of similar widths and it doesn't taper much, that means that's uh, probably an old snake that's been growing slowly. Absolutely, they can shed more than one time a year, several times, if they're warm and they're getting plenty of meals.
1: So we saw the Grand Canyon rattlesnake, the pink one, on a trail a couple days ago above Granite Rapids. And you were saying that that was a female who was growing slowly, but she was quite large, and that she had eaten recently. So you were looking at the rattle to see that, and then how did you know she had eaten recently?
2: I was helping run the dory down, and I was hunting for lizards down in Hermit Creek, where I saw six species. It was really cool. But your photo made me presume that was a female because that looked like a female tail. It wasn't that long, and it tapered off rapidly. Below the tail will not taper rapidly in a male because that's what's housing the hemipenes, inverted hemipenes.
1: Carp, can you tell us a couple of common misconceptions about snakes and how people, if they're listening to the show right now and they have a huge fear of snakes, how you might educate them a little bit more about it so that they can turn that fear into greater respect?
2: In our continent anyway, snakes aren't going to chase you. So a rattlesnake's not going to chase you. If you see a rattlesnake, just be aware that it's there. Keep your distance and feel fortunate for being able to make that observation. Another misconception is that they can strike their whole body length. Well, I happen to know that they probably can't, but you should stay that far away just to be sure. Most snakes are harmless. A lot of snakes eat rodents small mice and stuff that carry diseases like plague and haunt survivors. so the people they think they need to kill all the snakes in areas of texas where they have the rattlesnake roundups are actually they're doing damage they're allowing those rodent populations to expand and that provides potential vector for disease moreover the rodents eat the same thing that the cattle do so they're hurting themselves there as well
1: Is it true that many snakes come back to their territory? Like, for example, a family finds a rattlesnake under their deck, they put it in a bag, and they don't want to kill it, but they move it, say, five miles away. Is it true that sometimes those snakes will just come right back because that's their home and their territory?
2: Absolutely. It's incredible. We're still not certain how they find their way back, but there have been telemetry studies done on rattlesnakes since the early 80s. Rattlesnakes in Wyoming can leave a den and go out several miles during the summer and then return to that very same den. The females go out until they find uh, an abundant food source, and they tend to hang out there for the summer. The males are going out there to the same area so they can have access to those females. But yeah, they can find their way back to the same dens. We also think in New Mexico... You know, there's some huge dens where friends of mine have put pit tags, passive integrative transponders, little barcode, rice grain size things in the snakes that you can read with a wand where they've marked over 300 rattlesnakes from a single den. But my friends that study them are pretty sure they might move from den to den too. So yeah, they're pretty good orienteers.
1: What do you respect and admire the most about lizards?
2: I just like them. I think I'm kind of part lizard myself. When I get too cold i have a hard time functioning moving and i like being in the sun and being warm but i know it's not good for me to be in the sun all the time and and so does the lizard they like the same kind of climates as i do especially down here in the grand canyon my mom told me when i was a little kid i was always a smart aleck what do you want to be i told you i want to be a beach bum and look here i am
1: a beach bum with a wealth of knowledge about herpetology carp could you tell us about where you are right now and what you're looking at
2: Well, we're above Randy's Rock having lunch, and I'm looking at a little bit of the Supai group on top of some Redwall, on top of some Muav, and we're looking straight across the river at some Tapeets. There's some uh, unconformities in there, but we're looking at rocks that are anywhere from 550 million years old to of Permian age.
1: How long have you been coming down to the Grand Canyon?
2: This is my 15th straight year to do anywhere between one to five trips in the Grand Canyon. So I got, you know, I'm not a young guy. I got my start fairly late in the Grand Canyon.
1: We are on location on the Grand Canyon, having lunch across from Randy's Rock. We're about to run Bedrock Rapid in Dupendorf downstream. We're going to camp out at Stone Camp, if no one's there. And I'd like to play a song. So Carp, what song do you think of the most when you're down here running the Grand Canyon?
2: I'm going to choose All Along the Watchtower because it's a song I really like. It was written by Bob Dylan, one of the all-time greats. And then my favorite cover, of course, is Jimi Hendrix's cover. It's one of those songs that goes through my head a lot when I'm down here. I hiked in, but I can visualize what it looks like when you drop in at Furnace Flats after Lava Chewar and you look up there and you see a desert view. When I see that, You know, Jimi Hendrix starts playing in my head all along the watchtower. Plus, it's one of the first songs I learned to play on the guitar when I was a kid.
0: It's The Trail Has Traveled with Mandela.
1: location on the grand canyon floating down the colorado river sitting in a dory rowed by liam o'neill of azra we're about mile 140 coming up pretty soon here on upset rapid in a little bit and we've been doing the guide training seminar of the grand canyon river guides association so there's been a lot of guest speakers on this trip geologists hydrologists biologists and today we're speaking with a herpetologist named Jeff Carpenter. His friends call him Carp, and he's been running the Grand Canyon for 15 years. He's a scientist and a boatman. Carp, I would like to talk to you about some of the other snakes, reptiles, and lizards of the world that people might know about, and a lot of people have a very big fascination with some of the bigger snakes and most dangerous snakes. So off the top of your head, what do you think are the most interesting reptiles out there in this world?
2: One of my favorites, I remember my dad having one when I was young is uh, Dazi Peltis, the African egg-eating snake, and they specialize on eating eggs. What they do is they swallow the eggs and they have spines on their cervical vertebrae in their neck and then they crush the egg and drink the fluid and spit out the shell. I always thought those were pretty cool. I remember once being at the Dallas Zoo with my dad and we were filming things like rattlesnake combats and pygmy Mulga monitor wrestling, you know, put males together and see what happens. And I was just going around looking at the snakes, and I noticed the death adder was curling its yellow tail around, making it look like a caterpillar. I told my dad, and we went over there and videotaped it. When I was a teenager, he wrote it up, and I read it, and he put my name on it. And I was a co-author on uh, tail luring in the death adder, Acanthophis antarcticus. Those are among my favorites. The pygmy mulga monitors are cool. When they wrestle, they grapple. They hug each other with their front and back limbs and roll over and over on their noses and tails, but those aren't necessarily the most dangerous. I guess Southwestern herps in the United States maybe are my favorite, but we've talked about those a lot. On my life list is to visit other continents and study their reptiles. At the top of the list would be South Africa and Australia, and then Central and South America. Eric Pianca is a really famous lizard ecologist, and he studied on all three continents. So in a really diverse lizard assemblage in the southwestern United States, you might have 11, maybe 12 species, and that seems like a lot. If you go to South Africa, there could be 24, 25 species, and if you go to Australia, there could be upwards of 40. That's why those places are on the top of my list.
1: Carp, I'd like to talk to you about cobras in Africa, and maybe we'll talk about some of the other species of snakes in southern Africa you were talking about their fangs and how they are different than a lot of the snakes that we are used to
2: here in the states the north american vipers have fangs that are like hypodermic needles they're called selenoglyphus so they actually inject the venom and, and they fold back in the mouth when they shut their mouth and then they stick out when the mouth is open and they kind of stab the victim with it or the prey whereas cobra's teeth are fixed front fangs they don't fold back in spitting cobras are really cool instead of the venom going straight down the tooth and being delivered beneath the skin into the victim when they bite them spitting cobras have a little groove and a hole kind of in the front of the fang that directs it outwards and they can shoot it at someone and then you were telling me that when you see one you wave your hand and don't look at it because it would want to spit the venom in your eyes mildly venomous snakes in north america are rear fixed fangs like a night snake and a hognose snake have a very mild venom and their rear fang, they kind of have to get you with the rear of their mouth and kind of chew on you. And I think they're finding that even some of the garter snakes have a very, very mild venom that they can deliver that might be effective on a cricket or something like that. Boomslangs are colubrids. They're not in the families with the cobras. The cobras are elapids. The North American elapids are the coral snakes, and the rattlesnakes and copperheads and cottonmouths are vipers. Well. Boomslangs are colubrids, so they're in the same family with things like rat snakes and gopher snakes and garter snakes. But they have one of the more potent venoms, and so far as I know, there's no antivenom for that. If you get bit by one of those, you're history. The eminent herpetologist at the Chicago Field Museum, Carl Schmidt, and he knew there was no antivenom, messed up and got bitten by one of those, and he knew he was going to die, so he spent the next few hours taking notes and recording what happened. One of my mentors in graduate school, may he rest in peace, Joe Lapointe was in possession of those notes because he'd known Carl Schmidt growing up in the Chicago area.
1: And just a little bit of vocabulary for those out there listening. Bwim is an Afrikaans word, so it's a tree snake. So bwim is tree and slung is snake. So bwim slung, tree snake. Let's talk about Australia It has the most poisonous of arachnids and reptiles in the world.
2: I haven't been there. I haven't studied them a lot. They do have a great diversity of reptiles, and one of the reasons they might have so many lizards, well, first of all, there's less competition for niche space, for ecological ways of life, because there aren't placental mammals over there, or historically there were not. But also, the areas that are most diverse in terms of lizards have a lot of habitat heterogeneity. The most diverse areas have those uh, spinifex tussocks, and there's a a diversity of kinds of skinks. There's even a seed-eating skink over there. Yes, some of the Australian snakes are deadly venomous. I wasn't familiar with the spiders. Getting bit by a snake in the United States is not such a big deal. On other continents, you're in big trouble. If you get bit by a snake in the United States, don't panic try and keep your heart rate down. Different people give different sorts of advice. It used to be put a light tourniquet on it. You know, it used to be you poke a couple holes and try and suck the venom out, but people panic and they tend to do more damage than the snake did. The best thing to do is get to a hospital ASAP. If you're down here and you get bit by a a buzztail, that's a chopper ride and your trip's over.
1: Is it true that this would be a good idea to capture the snake if you're bitten and take it to the hospital with you so that the doctors can identify what kind of snake it is?
2: Well, I think that's a really good idea. If you can capture the snake without getting bit, it probably is a good idea, especially in Africa or Australia. Yeah, that's a great idea. I went to a talk when I was a little kid at the zoo with my dad, and it was one of these, Sherman Mitten, one of these venom experts, and he showed pictures of people that had been bitten by gopher snakes or bull snakes that had half their forearm cut out because the doctors didn't realize that was not a venomous snake bite, and they panicked. So I think that's solid advice catch the snake, maybe even take a picture if you can.
1: Carb, what can we learn from the way that snakes and lizards live their life from day to day?
2: Hmm. Well, some of the sit and wait predatory snakes, maybe we can learn patience. They have to be very patient. They just hunker down, save their energy until a prey item comes by and then they get a big meal that lasts for a long time. That's something maybe I've learned from the snake and uh, from the lizards, you know, learn when to get out of the sun. If you stay out in the sun too long, you'll bonk and you're you'll overheat shade up when it's too hot get out in the sun when you need to warm up
1: we've been on location floating down the colorado river which runs through the grand canyon speaking with jeff carpenter his friends call him carp he is a herpetologist at the university of oklahoma's biological field station thank you so much carp for coming down the river and teaching us about the lizards and snakes down here and for doing this interview with me you're welcome got a motorboat going by right now. I don't know if you can hear that.
2: Let's in the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Always be safe. Safety first. That's the main one. Watch your step. Pay attention. Look where you're going. The last tip would be another three tips that I got when I got my own boat down here on Science from uh, Brian Durker. He said, face your danger. If you're going to hit something, square up. And if you need to move the boat, don't use the power stroke. Use a few quick strokes, and that'll get you out of trouble a lot quicker.
1: Beautiful. carp. what song reminds you of being down here in the Grand Canyon and the show with?
2: I want to say Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones because I love the stones. And even though the lyrics to the song can be the exact opposite of what you experience in the you know rape, murder, all that yeah. stuff in the canyon, the canyon is my shelter from the outside world and it's giving me shelter right now. The canyon is my medicine, it's healing. I need to come down here every year and it recharges me. When I get too edgy over the winter, I need to get outdoors, I come out here and do a spring trip and I feel good for weeks and months afterward.
1: You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled. I want to thank my guest for this week, my good friend, Jeff Carpenter. Jeff is a herpetologist who specializes in lizards. Jeff has been rowing rafts and researching the herps on the Colorado River of the Grand Canyon for over a decade. Jeff teaches field herpetology at the University of Oklahoma's Biological Station. Jeff is also a talented artist who works mainly with welding. Find us on Facebook and subscribe to the Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net. To follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for outdoor information and inspiration which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week is, instead of relying unduly on a cell phone, especially for your more ambitious wilderness excursions, consider the rental or purchase of a satellite phone. A satellite phone, or sat phone, is a mobile phone that communicates directly with orbiting communications satellites. The handsets can be the size and weight of the original mobile phones of the 1990s. They also have a large retractable antenna. Sat phones work better than cell phones, although they do require a wide view of the sky to get a reliable connection. That's it for this week, Missoula, but until next week, Get out there and shred the gnar. Because the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself.